This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story, Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. I'm Rose Fox. I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly, bringing you the very best of book talk. We're coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions, so send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pubwkly radio on Twitter. Today, we'll be talking with Robert T. Kiyosaki, creator of the best-selling Rich Dad, Poor Dad books and author of Why A Students Work for C Students. Then, PW Senior News Editor Andrew Albanese will join us to talk about his new book, The Battle of 999, which explains the recent publishing antitrust lawsuit in language anyone can understand. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. So... On fiction, it uh, looks like Gone Girl is still on there. Gone Girl is still there, but it's about to be gone. It's been on the list 55 weeks. Wow. Uh, and, and at the end of this month is when we draw the division between front list and back list. It took me ages to learn what those terms meant. I heard them bandied around for years, and it really just means it's been around for a year. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's all it means. So, right. so the book celebrates its first birthday this month. Uh, and it has sold nearly a million copies altogether. And at the end of this month, it will probably continue selling very well, but it will drop off of our official bestseller list, which is reserved for frontless books, which is to say baby books, books that are less than a year old. Right. Wow. So in Great. books in their, in their infancy. Sure. Uh, but congratulations to Jillian Flynn. That's yeah, really pretty a, amazing. quite an accomplishment. Uh, and, uh, I also want to look at the, the fiction list overall. And mm. again, Dan Brown is in the number one spot. Right. We're all surprised. But there's a new number two. Khalid Hosseini has dropped. And uh, now Janet Ivanovich and Lee Goldberg are at number two with The Heist, which has sold nearly 35,000 copies. Oh, that's which is impressive. pretty strong. Um, and uh, I'm sorry. I think it's actually 350,000 copies. Uh, right. <laughs> my error but it's an important error right, right. Um, so I wanted to make sure I correct that so that that's uh, that's some pretty pretty good sales I was impressed at 35 <laughs> I was impressed at 35 too um, but uh, you know for the, for the hardcover front list you know, sometimes those, those bigger numbers really get up there it's, sure right it's impressive right. and at number three uh, Neil Gaiman lands uh, with just a little bit behind 323,000 copies sold with The Ocean at the End of the World this is an interesting little book it's skinny it's 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 a slim book, you which know, is unlike Neil Gaiman's books. Um, you know, people tend to think of his books like American Gods and Anansi Boys, which were her his most recent books for adults, right. and those are hefty. Those are big hardcovers, and this one's just a, a little thing. Uh, it's it is a real novel. It's not a novella, uh, yeah. but it's 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 got that that heft in your hands where. It has that that almost ethereal feeling, which I feel like you know William Morrow has done this very smartly because uh, that's really what the book is. It mm. is a book that's right on that line between realism and speculative fiction. So you know what's going on? Is it real? Is it fantasy? Is it metaphor? Is it hallucination? It's never entirely mm. clear, and a good chunk of it is also appears to be autobiographical. Really, so, uh, so it's, his fans will. His fans really are eating it up. Into this, sure. um, lots and lots of people are very into this, and uh, so are the reviewers. PW yeah. gave it a starred review. Uh, right. you know, we we think that these uh, it's it's just a, a tremendous effort, uh, and it'll be very interesting to see where it goes. It's you know, Gaiman has always been very unapologetically genre. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he he worked in comics. Um, he got his start collaborating, his start with novels, collaborating with Terry Pratchett, who's of course a big name in fantasy fiction. Right. Uh, and you know, books like The Graveyard Book, which are his books for kids, um, and also his books for adults, like American Gods, all very fantastical. This one is definitely more on the literary side. It's aimed at a literary market, but there's still plenty for his fantasy fans. And I I think it'll be very interesting 
to see where it goes. He's it's pretty much the only market he hasn't captured. I mean, he's got he's got picture books. He's right. got books like Coraline yes. for middle uh, grade readers, he's, which my kids still watch. Oh, so, absolutely! Yeah. You know, it's been, been made in, yeah. made into films, and then books for adults like that that again have been filmed or televised, like Neverwhere, which was made into a, a miniseries by the right. BBC. So he's he's just become a superstar. He I, I helped to run a small convention in the Boston area. And when he shows up, we have to give him a name tag that says Mr. Palmer. Uh, <laughs> because, uh, of course, he's married to rock star Amanda Palmer. You know, he he, has, he more or less has to travel incognito. And even then, he still has people go, was that Neil Gaiman? I think I just saw Neil Gaiman. Uh, you know, the word spreads and the fans mob him. So uh, it, it it will be interesting to see whether that star power translates into the, the literary realm. Sure. Yeah. So far, he's off to a good start. And I think you called it from last week. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah I mean, there there's no hiding this. Yeah, uh, right. <laughs> it's, it's one of those books where you see it and you know this is going to break big. Right. We're ready to move on to nonfiction. Absolutely. You know, I, there's uh, everything's been pretty static there from last week to this week. There's uh, only two debuts in the top 20. One of them, uh, number 10, is Loyalty 3.0, How to Revolutionize Customer and Employee Engagement with Big Data and Gamification. And this is, uh, <laughs> wow, what a our, yeah, mouthful it, of yes, those words. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and this is by uh, Rajat uh, Paria. From the Silicon Valley started Punch-Up, a pioneer and innovator of, uh, in gamification. Uh, this is coming from the book, is light years ahead when it comes to the concept of loyalty. And so he talks about how to create and, and keep loyalty through uh, gamification. What is gamification? Well, what does I, that mean? I, I, this is what I'm, I'm trying to, uh, I, I think by reading the book, we'll, we'll learn about it. And I think the, uh, uh, the folks uh, who will pick up this book know all about it. Number 13 is Darwin's Doubt, the Explosive Origin of Animal Life and the Case for Intelligent Design. Uh, now, this book by Stephen Mayer picks up on, on as the title suggests, Darwin's Doubt. There is one part of Darwin's theory of evolution that he could not explain, uh, and, and this is that during the Cambrian explosion, many animals, uh, the fossils, uh, appeared uh, with their ancestors uh, – non-existent so so you're looking at rock you're looking at fossils and darwin just could not see anything that had happened before and so uh stephen meyer picks up and talks about what animals were around in the cambrian um era and why they didn't show up previously how they seem to just appear and this is number 13 and science is uh for the last several years it's just become uh such a I, i think such a big market for books uh and evolution is a, a hot topic huge yes exactly exactly so and i think that's what uh that those are the two books that i have on my nonfiction list and just looking ahead just a little bit uh to next week to see what might be coming out what readers should uh be uh, on the lookout for this is circle of friends the massive federal crackdown on insider training and why the markets always work against the little guys and this is by charles gasparino who is an award-winning writer uh for the wall street journal who's now a uh does commentary for fox news uh Mm -hmm. harper business is uh coming out with seventy-five thousand copies of this book and i I think this is going to be of interest to a lot of um maybe small-time traders to see what they might be doing wrong or why things might be working against them. Uh, we also have, uh, for in the cookbooks, Kevin West uh, from Knopf is coming out with Saving the Season, A Cook's Guide to Home Canning, Pickling, and Preserving. And you wouldn't expect something on this title uh, to be, you know, to, to, for a publisher to support with 50,000 copies, but this seems to be a growing trend in the last couple of years. People wanting to preserve their own can what fruits, uh, what vegetables they have in the fall and in, in the summer that they can can and preserve, keep in their cupboard. And he also talks not just about pickling, but also about what uh, spices, what herbs to keep. That'll keep uh, from any season for how long and when. And he talks about how to pack your pantry. Um, and I'd, then I'd be yeah. interested in that. I, mean, I, I actually, yeah. I, I love pickling. It's just so satisfying. The, the hard part is letting things sit. And you know, not knowing for days or even weeks or months whether they're still going to be good when you finally open the jar. 
but uh, if you have the patience for it, it can be very rewarding. It's true. And for me, I've for a long time had pickled uh, peppers, mm-hmm. uh, sweet peppers, hot peppers from a garden. And it's always wonderful when, when exactly after you're waiting, you kind of want to break into it a little bit early. Uh, but just to like pick out these peppers and uh, put them on any dish that you're creating. The same thing, uh, we used to go to an Italian neighbor's house uh, and can uh and jar uh, tomato sauce. Mm-hmm. We would crush the tomatoes and vacuum seal it in, in you know, put it in, in hot and boiling water and cans and jars upon jars upon jars of uh, tomato sauce that you wouldn't eat till the next season for the most part. So, wow. Yeah, anyway. And uh, and speaking of Italian, there is one, one book that's coming out, uh, Malavita, a novel by Tonino Benacquista from Penguin uh, Books. It's a paperback, 75,000 copies. I, I actually don't know much about this novel, um, but it's Italian, and that's but it's good Italian enough for and you. It's good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We've been reviewing this, uh, well, next week's bestseller list. Uh, but while we're talking about next week, let's talk a little bit about the future of Publishers Weekly Radio because some big changes are afoot for us. Yes, yes, big changes. Um, the biggest one, uh, maybe the big, that we will no longer be on Sirius uh, XM Radio. That's right. Um, Sirius XM's book radio channel is uh, undergoing some changes, mm-hmm. and we're going to be going our separate ways. So I wanted to let all of our loyal listeners know that we would love to continue chatting to you every week. Um, we're certainly planning to keep the show going, and you can access it on our website if you go to publishersweekly.com slash PW Radio. It should be pretty easy to remember, just like our email address is pwradio at publishersweekly.com. You just flip that around, publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. It will be right there. And you can also get archives of all of the shows that we've recorded so far. So if there was anything that you particularly loved, and I'm certainly looking forward to getting to listen to the show, which I almost never get to do um, anytime, anywhere, just by downloading it off of the website. So all of our back shows are going to be there going all the way back to, I guess, December when we started this out. Yeah, that's right. Um, Dating all the way back. And so it's all going to be up on our site for anyone to listen anytime. So if you particularly loved uh, our conversation with Beverly Jenkins or Charlene Harris uh, or any of the other fabulous people that we've had the real pleasure of chatting with during our time with Sirius, uh, you can go to our website and get them there. Yeah, and, and go to the website. If you're listening to the show right now, go to the website to see. Uh, you could actually see our previous shows. Take a look at them. Click on them. Listen. And... Um, you know, there might be an author uh, you, you missed and uh, would like to hear. Yeah, and, you know, share it with your friends. The nice thing about it being available on our website is it's available to anyone. You don't have to be a subscriber to Publishers Weekly uh, or a SiriusXM subscriber. Um, they're just there for you to enjoy. And uh, I'm, I'm always glad to do anything that might get us a bigger audience. Yep. So, you know, short of saying scandalous things <laughs> on the air. Almost anything. I'll do almost anything. So we hope uh, you'll stick with us. Yeah, it would be a a real pleasure to have you along for the next stage in the evolution of Publishers Weekly Radio. So just go to publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. You'll find us there, and we look forward to continuing to talk with you every week about the very best of book talk. And next up, we have Robert Kiyosaki, who will tell us why A students work for C students. So we'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Robert T. Kiyosaki on the line. He's the creator of the Rich Dad, Poor Dad series of advice books, and most recently is the author of Why A Students Work for C Students. Thanks so much for joining us, Robert. Thank you. So tell us, do A students really work for C students, and, and how? Well, I wrote... If- if you follow the Rich Dad series of books, I'm very concerned over the reality that our schools have no financial education at all. So regardless if you're an A student or a B student or a C student, my question has always been to parents, are schools preparing your child for the real world? You see, in my world, we, I use money. And what I'm saying, rich or poor, smart or stupid, we all use money. But for some reason, our schools don't teach us about money. 
So the whole premise of the book, why A students work for C students and B students work for the government, is that even if your child is an A student, they come out of school not prepared for the real world in the, in the, as, in the area of money. The subject of money is a very big subject, but it's not taught in schools. That's why I wrote the book. And when you say A students, B students, and C students, you're not just talking about academics. So tell us a little bit about the, the code you're using there. Well, there's two things. We all know that A students are supposed to be the smart ones. But if you notice, but in this book, there's a double meaning to it. Uh, in this book, A stands for academics, like people who do well in school, like my poor dad. My poor dad was the head of education for the state of Hawaii, valedictorian, went to Stanford, uh, Northwestern University of Chicago. But he knew nothing about money. The B student stands for those who, don't, who do less well in school, and they become the bureaucrats. That's what B stands for. And unfortunately, our schools are pumping out bureaucrats left and right. Again, there's nothing wrong with being a bureaucrat, but again, they don't know much about money. And C students in this book is code name for capitalists. And capitalists are people who understand money, so they know how to have money work for them and have people work for them. So just recently we've had, you know, the presidential elections and all this, and they keep saying that, you know, we, we need to create more jobs. Well, our schools are not, not training kids to be capitalists. They're trained to be academics or bureaucrats. And so the reason there's a shortage of jobs is there's very few capitalists in, in the system right now. They come out looking for jobs rather than people who know how to create jobs. So that's, uh, that's the double meaning of the why A students work for B students and C students work for the government. I'm very pro-education. I'm just very concerned. The question is, are schools preparing your child or your ch our children for the real world? I say no, and that's why I wrote the book. I'm assuming that you were a C student. So, so tell us about what you were like as a student. Well, I learned nothing about money at school. The story of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, again, has been was on the New York Times bestseller list for over six and a half years. It's a very simple story of what my poor dad, again, a Ph.D., valedictorian, and head of the school system in Hawaii taught me about money versus my rich dad, who was my best friend's father, who was a capitalist, but a guy like, just much like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates or Walt Disney or Thomas Edison, never finished school. Mm -hmm. And so what my rich dad was teaching me about money was not taught in school. And that's been my whole, as you know, my agenda, my gripe, my, my axe to grind. I said, why don't we teach kids about money in school? Because we all use money. Sure. And just curious, uh, what was it that you learned from your poor dad? There must have been something, though, too. I'm just curious. Well, he, he taught me how to read and write, which was important. Right. And then he told me to get a job and work for the government, which become a government bureaucrat like him. And I said, I don't want to do that. I want to be an entrepreneur. And that's when I realized... Me wanting to be an entrepreneur, I didn't have the skill set to be it. I didn't have the mindset either. Mm -hmm. Our school system, you know, you just go to school so you can get a job. They're training you to be entrepreneurs, not, I mean, training you to be employees, not entrepreneurs. And that's what's causing the massive economic problem in, this, in our country. So are you talking about, when you're talking about education, are you looking at high school, at college? Is this something that just needs to change throughout our entire school system? I don't think it's going to change, I'm afraid. That's why I wrote Why A Students Work for B Students. I wrote, the book is for parents, not for the kids. Mm -hmm. It's you you know, how to give your child a financial head start without giving them money. See, my poor dad never gave me any money, and my rich dad never gave me any money. And that's why I value education so much, is my rich dad gave me a financial education, which is the reason today that I've not had a job. I create jobs. I employ people. I provide housing. I am a capitalist. But without my rich dad's education starting at nine, and he, he, you know, I was just a kid. He was, my best friend and I would just play Monopoly with rich dad, and he would teach us about how to think like a capitalist so we could create jobs, create businesses, and not need to have the government take care of us. And in A students working for B students, one of the reasons the United States is in such huge trouble is a thing called entitlement programs. Entitlement programs such as Social Security and Medicare are going to bankrupt our country. They already have. Technically, the United States is bankrupt. We just haven't gone through the procedures yet. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Robert T. Kiyosaki about his new book, Why A Students Work for C Students. And in this case, A students means academics, and C students means capitalists. So um, let's talk a little bit about your background. Uh, you mentioned that you graduated from the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy in New York. Uh, what was that educational experience like for you, and what did you do afterwards? 
I mean, it was great, you know, because I wanted to be a sailor, so I went to the best sailing school in the world. But when I was 22, I realized I didn't want to sail. I got a, you know, when I graduated from Kings Point, I got a job with Standard Oil of California working their ships. I was a ship's officer on their tankers. Mm-hmm. But the Vietnam War was still on, so then I resigned from that because, you know, most of my classmates were trying to dodge the war. And I volunteered for the Marine Corps, and they went to fly for the Marine Corps in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So I had two professions by the time I was 25. One was a ship's officer, and one was a pilot. And I realized at that time I didn't want to be an employee working for the airlines or working for Standard Oil. So with my rich dad's basic education he taught me starting at age nine, I just started becoming an entrepreneur, and I've been an entrepreneur ever since. I create jobs. I don't look for jobs. That's my whole point. Mm-hmm. So I, I just I was just curious, how did you come up with this argument? How did you start seeing this? And um, uh, you know, for your book, that's a great question. Um, in 1973, I returned from Vietnam, and my poor dad, the PhD, very good man, hardworking, honest as the day as long, was unemployed. And he couldn't find work. So here's my dad. He's 73. He was about 53 years old, and he was looking for work. And uh, the reason he was looking for work, he made the tragic mistake of running for lieutenant governor against his boss, the governor, who was a Democrat, my father's Republican. And the, the lieutenant, I mean, the governor, John Burns, said to dad, my dad, said, you'll never work again. And he basically blacklisted my dad. And then I, so I come back from Vietnam, and my dad's unemployed, sitting in his house in Honolulu. And he doesn't know what to do. He's completely, he has no skills for the real world. So that's why in 1973, I was now at 25 years old, and I started going, holy moly. And that's when I started to really see, now as a, as a young adult, seeing the flaws in the education system. And, then I, and what I see today is the same thing happening. You have guys my age losing their jobs. I'm a baby boomer. And then you have their kids not finding jobs. And so that's why, you know, in 1996, 97, I published Rich Dad, Poor Dad, as a manifesto calling for financial education as soon as possible because our countries are going broke right now. And uh, just curious, uh, you know, what about kids who went to quote-unquote elite colleges? How do they compare to others? Or or do A students at Harvard still work for C students from the same school? Well, in my generation, yes, they went out looking for jobs. But if you notice today, the young kids are are, are looking to become entrepreneurs. That's a very big shift going on right now. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic about what I see young people do. My concern is they don't have the financial education mindset or skill set to become entrepreneurs. And that's why, as, as you may know, uh, 99% of all small businesses fail within 10 years. And I, I, that's, that's tragic. So right now, you know, I've, I've seen guys my age who are in their 60s who don't have enough money. They take their life savings like my poor dad did, start a business and lose it all. So this is a national tragedy, and I, there's many causes to it, but I see it as a lack of financial education in our school system. And as, as you can tell, I'm very pro-education. I'm very concerned that we're not education, edu- educating kids properly, preparing them for the real world. So what about the arts? At PW, obviously, we're very concerned with books, with publishing. Um, I myself am actually a college dropout, but I didn't do it in order to start a business. Uh, Many of the folks who I hang out with who didn't finish college went on to become writers, and that's a type of entrepreneurship, but it's not really job creation in the sense that you're describing it. So how how do the arts and artists, people want to make a living creating (laughs) art, fit into this uh, paradigm of yours? I love you. I love the arts. <laughs> the only A subjects I got were art. <laughs> you know, uh, my my dad, my poor dad, was the you know, head of education. He was an artist also. But really what upset him was that I'm the only guy that got hung at the Academy of Arts. as My work was submitted and his wasn't. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> so what you're talking about is really the importance of right brain and left brain. And the value I have is I am both left brain and right brain. So I, you know, I design my games, I design my book covers. Uh, I work with words to make them simple to create pictures. So arts are very, very important. All I'm saying is this, without any basic financial background, you look at the stats of the United States, Social Security is uh, a $16 trillion deficit, and Medicare is a $260 trillion deficit deficit and getting worse. 
So technically, as a guy who understands money on the left brain side, is that the U.S. is technically bankrupt. We just haven't gone through bankruptcy yet. And my concern is, what are we going to do when we have millions, what, 80 million baby boomers who start now collecting on Social Security and Medicare? How are we going to pay for that? That's why I write. That's why I speak. I'm very pro-education. I'm just saying we don't have enough financial education, which is what Rich Dad Poor Dad was about. I'm Mark Rotella, and we're talking with Robert T. Kiyosaki. He's the author of Why A Students Work for C Students. And I wanted to ask you, you, you got rich, if I'm not mistaken, uh, working for a company who developed the first Velcro and nylon uh, wallets for, for surfers. Well, I didn't get rich during that. I started that business back in 1975. And, the, and the, like most entrepreneurs, the business was a tremendous success, but it also went bust. And uh, when the business came down, uh, several people suggested I should, I should declare bankruptcy. And my rich Ted said to me, he said, congratulations, you screwed up. <laughs> and he says, now you can become a smart man. He says, learn from your mistakes. He wasn't upset with it. And he says, I want you to rebuild your business. So from about 78 on, I, re- I rebuilt my business. And that was the best business school I could ever have gone through because I was learning from my mistakes, not being punished for my mistakes. And that's really how I got rich was making mistakes. So uh, afterwards, uh, you became bankrupt. And, and at one no, point... No, I, I wasn't bankrupt. The business, oh, the the bus- business was bankrupt. It's a very big uh, difference if you understand legal, legal terms. Uh-huh, sure. And at one point, I had read somewhere this could not be, but that you were, uh, for a short while, this might have been after college or something, living out of a Chevy. No, no, that was, that was when I, when I started to decide to become a teacher. That was in 1984. Oh, wow. So th- we're moving on a few years then. Yeah. I, I, yeah. See, the thing is, I'm not afraid of failing because I know how to make money. So I started a new business back in 1984 and 1985. And as most businesses, you know, it costs more money to start than you have. And so that's why my wife and I, for about a week, were in our, our car until we found a, a woman who put us up in her basement and we continued on with our business. And that business went into an international company, which we sold in 1994. And we're now financially free. And in 1996, we started the next business, which was Rich Dad, the Rich Dad Company, which went international again. So I'm, I'm basically a serial entrepreneur. And the point here is this. In school, they punish you if you're making mistakes. The difference that my Rich Dad taught me is we're supposed to learn from mistakes. And learning from mistakes makes us smarter, not academic smarts. So can you tell us a few of those mistakes that you learned from so that maybe some of our listeners can learn from them too, perhaps without <laughs> going through quite the same experience? Or is this really just something you have to do hands-on? Well, I always recommend starting small. My, it's a very good question you brought me. The nylon and Velcro surfer wall business was supposed to be a small business. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it took off. And then I didn't have the skill set, and nor did my two partners have the skill set to handle success. And that's what wiped us out. So that was mm-hmm. the first lesson. I said, you know, success will kill you. But it was a good experience because we had to fix it up. The Rich Dad Company, I went through the wrong, I went through an, another traumatic experience with that also, is, is having uh, partners who, uh, let's say, are less than honest. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, it's kind of shocking to be working with somebody for 10 years and find out they've been stealing from you. And, you know, it's just not into my, you know, I'm a former Marine. We don't do that stuff. Right. But apparently in the real world, they do. You know, I went, holy America, how can you smile at me every morning, have coffee there every morning, and be stealing? I just don't understand how, you could, how your guts could handle that. So the good lesson for my, my wife and I was, that, okay, and so we had to buy them out for $12 million, husband and wife, both accountants and attorneys, and, and it was painful. It was, it was more painful than the disappointment of human character. Mm-hmm. So, I mean... And that's what I mean by the real world. So that's what I write about. It's covered in Rich Dad, Poor Dad. So this is, you have to have good accounts and attorneys, but you, hopefully they're honest ones. <laughs> sure, yeah. <laughs> and which is why, which is why you know, like the, the good thing about it is the plug for PW, Publisher Weekly. You guys have been on my side for a long time. Kevin Breyerman is a stand-up guy. He's been forthright with me. Uh, he's been a good mentor to me. And one of the reasons of my success in the publishing business is having good people like uh, Kevin Breyerman and Publishers Weekly guiding me. 
And it's, it's not always pleasant, but you have to have good people. We've been talking with Robert T. Kiyosaki, and you can find YA Students Work for C Students, which is his latest book, in stores right now. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the time, and good luck to you guys. All right, thank, thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Andrew Albanese will tell us why the U.S. Justice Department took some of the world's biggest publishing companies to court. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today senior news editor Andrew Albanese is here to tell us about his new book on the Justice Department's antitrust lawsuit against several major publishers. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Hey, great to be here. It's always nice to have you on the show, especially because, of course, I, I got my start in the radio and podcasting world by chatting with you uh, on our weekly podcast so long ago. That's right. You have uh, a great radio voice, Rose. Let, well, let thank you very that. much, uh, and, and you likewise. Uh, so you've got this book out. I, I, you know, a couple weeks ago, what, what was it, three weeks ago, it wasn't, wasn't even a gleam in your eye? Uh, um, it, it was gleaming, but it wasn't a, <laughs> wasn't, a, wasn't a mark on a page, we can say. <laughs> right. Um, and now there's a book, and it's out there selling for one ninety nine in the Kindle store, and it's called The Battle for nine ninety nine. So tell us a little bit about this book, where it came from. Yeah, well, so, you know, I've been covering this case against the Justice Department probably for close to two years now, definitely for over a year since it since the DOJ first announced that it was going to be suing five publishers and Apple over uh, price-fixing charges. Uh, and when the trial finally rolled around on June 3rd, um, pretty much everything that we knew about the case was already written in court filings. I already pretty much knew how the trial was going to unfold because I had read the playbooks for both sides uh, in the trials. And while reading those playbooks, which is the pretrial filings and all the evidence uh, that they had submitted, it struck me at one point that, you know, there's a really great narrative outlined here. Um, and I'm sure that most people don't want to go through uh, and and read a thousand pages of court filings. Uh, so I, I determined that over the course of a couple of weeks, um, I was going to try to boil this all down into one narrative that would help people sort of understand what was going on here. Uh, the book is called The Battle for 999, The Battle of 999, excuse me. Uh, and I, I hope it does make a little bit clear to people um, exactly the circumstances that led to uh, Apple's price-fixing trial. So do you have a legal background? Are you an attorney or you're, you just think this sort of thing is fun? <laughs> I just sort of th I think this stuff is really fun. You know, I don't have a legal background per se, but I've been covering legal issues uh, pretty closely since about 1999. And let's just say there's been a lot of them. It's been almost like going to law school, uh, dating back to um, Tassini, uh, to the Google case, uh, which covered a lot of, uh, which took up a lot of time for me, and right up to this one. And it's funny because at one point I actually did consider going to law school. I was so ish, so interested in all of these issues that at age 40, uh, I was actually considering going back to law school. And luckily, uh, James Grimmelman from the New York Law School, uh, who's now a PW contributing editor for Legal Affairs, talked me out of it. He reminded me that I'd probably still be paying my student loans off by the time I wanted to retire. So. <laughs> <laughs> and they, they, they do say that, uh, that we lose some of our best uh, writers to uh, the legal field. So I'm glad you stuck with us. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so since you don't have a legal background, um, does that mean that this book is going to be accessible to people who likewise uh, don't really know a, a voir dire from a habeas corpus? <laughs> Are you implying that lawyers don't write well for general audiences? Um, <laughs> so my, my brother just graduated from law school, and I love him dearly, but every once in a while we have a conversation where I have to stop him and say, please repeat that in English. <laughs> well, yes, I think you're in luck. I definitely uh, in fact, you know, most of this book is really not about uh, the legal workings per se, but more the evidence that led to the charges being brought in the first place. And basically uh, what that story boils down to is how the publishing industry was sort of caught flat-footed by the e-book revolution, uh, specifically the Kindle and Amazon and its nine ninety nine pricing. It really did sort of catch them out of the blue, uh, which is strange to me, considering like everything that else, everything that's gone on with digital and 
and, uh, and and the way it sort of you know, took the music industry by storm. I think what happened for publishers in 2007 when the Kindle launched is that they were still really paying attention to sort of the negative things that came out of digital piracy um, and you know, new markets that they weren't prepared for, and so you know they were they were stuck trying to negotiate, uh, you know, good, solid DRM and trying to make sure that copyrights were respected. Uh, and they weren't really thinking about the financial terms of, you know, what if, what if these e-books things succeed? What if people really like them? Um, meanwhile, Amazon sort of got it right with its Kindle. E-books took off and were very popular. And suddenly, publishers found out that they didn't have pricing control over their goods and felt a little bit threatened. And the actions that they took uh, once they realized that uh, Amazon was, was going to prove to be a bit of competition as well as a partner for them uh, led them ultimately to being charged in this case. I'm Mark Rotella, and we are talking with senior news editor Andrew Albanese about his uh, new book, uh, Battle of 999, which is on well, any place where you can download an ebook for only $1.99. And we're talking about the Justice Department's antitrust lawsuit. Now, uh, in, in The Atlantic, uh, just, just this week, Peter Osnos talked about your book and, and really how well you kind of made clear to everyone and, and you, you described the situation as you were just saying not just what was going on legally but how it was really a, a, a group of publishers not really calculating to do this but really just trying to come together at least trying to you know make sense of what was going on yeah you know that was really gratified to see that you know First of all, I have a lot of respect for Peter Osnos. He's you know, fantastic. And the fact that he would uh, take the time to write on this book, I was really gratified to see that. And he really yeah. got it exactly right. In his piece on The Atlantic, he sort of nailed it. We, we hear antitrust charges, and we think of all the big corporations that are involved here, price fixing, et cetera. And right away, we start thinking about uh, cigar-chomping industrialists in a back room sort of carving up, uh, you right. know, you, you know, carving up the spoils of their market. And really, that's not what this was about. And, you know... The DOJ is sort of to blame for that. Initially, when they had brought the initial suits, the initial price-fixing suits, there were, you know, as Peter Osnos notes, there were all these, you know, flowery details about uh, private dinners in the wine cellar at Pichelin. But it really didn't happen that way. It really wasn't that publishers were in this nefarious plot to, uh, you know, carve up the spoils of their market, per se. It was more that they were reacting to a new ebook market that they didn't adequately prepare for, in my opinion. If you could just describe for us, because I know you've been going to the trials, and uh, what's that been like? I mean, if you could just describe the atmosphere, uh, how many people are attending, what it looks like. I mean, we have this these impression of, you know, from court TV <laughs> or, yeah. or from any kind of uh, uh, criminal uh, thrillers, but what's it been like with this group of, of, of really well-educated literary people? You know, it's it's. I, there's a few things to say about that. First, you know, trials are definitely not like you see on TV, and I think to most people who aren't, you know, complete geeks who like to talk about copyrighted parties like me, they, they would they might find it pretty boring. Um, and one of the frustrating parts, I think of a trial is that, you know, witnesses don't get up there and tell their stories. You know, they just don't get up there and tell you what you want to know. It has to be drawn out of them by attorneys. So much of what you hear on the stand is the attorney saying, isn't it true that, and very step-by-step step sort of making their case. And most of the time what you get from the witness is, I don't recall, <laughs> or oh, I right. don't remember that. You still, it's, it's a lot of hedging, and it can go on for a long time. Um, there was days in the courtroom where it was pretty packed. For example, when Apple's uh, architect of its iTunes store and its app store, Eddie Q, uh, and of course of the iBook store, when he took the stand to testify as a close associate of Steve Jobs, the courtroom got pretty packed. It was like, you know, it was like church on Christmas. You know, you start seeing a lot of people that normally don't pay a lot of attention to these issues. Um, But by and large, it was exactly what I expected in the courtroom because I had been reading, I'd read every shred of the court filings and I knew exactly the playbook that was going to unfold at trial and what everybody was going to say pretty much and what the defense was going to try to spin this testimony as and what the DOJ was going to try to do. So I was really not terribly surprised by anything that happened at the trial. So since you're not surprised by anything that happened, does that mean you know how it's going to come out? Do you have a, a prognostication there of a, a prediction of how the, the judge is going to decide? 
I have, you know, two two thoughts on that. Um, you know, I can say how it's going to turn out for the ebook market because we already have settlements from all five of the publishers that were accused. Um, so we can say with certainty that you know consumers are going to see roughly $175 million in refunds to their ebook accounts uh, sometime probably in the next year as these settlements are approved. They're going to be issued as credits um, as much as $1.25, though I believe that is probably going to rise. I think it, at the at last count it was up to maybe $1.35 for some New York Times bestsellers that were purchased as new releases. And you know, the interesting thing about that that I'll note is that uh, that's going to be they're, they're issued as credits. So that's not a check that the publishers are writing in terms of, you know, giving up. This is all money that's going to be given to consumers that they can spend on books. So it's going to flow right back to the publishers. So in that Mm -hmm. sense, it's almost like a court order promotion for them. Um, Because once you get this $1.25 credit, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to use it to buy an e-book. And while you're there, maybe you'll buy two. So, you know, in terms of, you know, the pain that publishers are going to feel, the financial stuff's not so bad. But the DOJ is now firmly encamped within these publishing houses, and they're going to be overseeing the digital business of these publishing houses for the next two years. They come out from under those sanctions in 2014. Uh, and what that means is it's a lot of, you know, it's, it's frankly a pain for the publishers to have to deal with. You know, they, they have to log their conversations. They have to have conversations uh, with attorneys who have to train people. Um, it's costly, it's time-consuming, and it's a real pain for them. But after 2014, they come out from under that. Now, for Apple, if they are to lose, and I'll give you my prognostication on that at some point, (laughs) if they are to lose, that's really the nightmare scenario for them. They definitely do not want the DOJ coming in and setting up shop in Cupertino, which is probably the main reason why they haven't found a way to settle. Writing a big check to consumers is not a problem for Apple, which is sitting on billions in cash. And they would be more than happy probably to walk away from this admitting no wrongdoing. But, you know, the fact that that's going to come along with the you know, DOJ regulators setting up shop and looking over their digital business, and not just ebooks, all of their digital businesses precludes Ouch. them from settling. Yeah. And that's for my prognostication. It's hard for me to go out on a limb and say this, but I'll say uh-huh. this because Judge Cote in a couple of places in the trial said that she thinks that the record indicates that there was some sort of uh, common scheme going on here. And because the DOJ attorneys made a pretty good case for this, for there being a pretty low burden of proof on them, I think that, you know, there's a fairly good chance that we're going to see Apple held liable in this case for some sort of price fixing. Wow. That's a great prognostication. And uh, I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, and this is Senior News Editor Andrew Albanese talking to us about the Justice Department's antitrust lawsuit and his book, Battle of 999. And I have a couple questions. The first one is, if you could maybe walk us through, how, how different is this with Apple, different from how publishers set their own pricing for books? Well, generally, the way it's worked for ebooks is the way it's worked for print books. When they when they initially set up their ebook businesses, it was, it operated on a wholesale or a reseller model, as we like to call it, and that is that the publisher would set the list price for the book, and then they would sell it to the uh, retailer for that price, which would be you know in this case if it was Amazon, and then Amazon would sell it onto the consumer for whatever they deemed a reasonable markup. But what happened with ebooks because Amazon was trying to both sell its platform and its devices as well as you know the ebooks they marked these prices down rather than adding a margin to these books and making a little profit on them they decided that they were going to sell them for break even prices or in some cases below break even prices and what that did was uh, in, in the publisher's mind that created that sort of devalued books for them they sure. saw this as all of a sudden you know 999 was becoming the de facto price for books and as people bought e-readers and started reading digitally while you could forget about them ever going to their local bookstore and buying a $30 hardcover again. So that's what really sort of alarmed publishers here was this sort of, you know, loss of pricing power with e-books. The thing that I would mention about that is that they probably should have thought a little bit more about this before they, they jumped in bed and, you know, went to work with Amazon on this stuff. They, it, it, it sort of is a little it strains. It's it's hard for me to believe that nobody ever talked with Amazon about what they might be charging for these books before they actually entered into their retail sales agreements. So um, 
I've heard actually similar things from a different side. I know a lot of people who are entrepreneurs, who are, who are writers, freelance writers, uh, who talk about the problem with having so much text available for free and with people being paid very little to write because they feel that that similarly devalues books. So how does this all you know, integrate with the, the economic collapse that a lot of publishers were facing right around when... Uh, the Kindle came live and people really started talking about ebooks because those were very difficult times for publishers and they really needed to keep their profits up. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about that is that they made less money under the agency models they struck with Apple. It, you know, it is a very real problem now that the flood of text, I, well, I wouldn't say necessarily a problem, but it's a real challenge now. The flood of text that we have on the market and what do we value these things at? And, but these are all pressures that have been in the market for some time now, and we've seen them manifest themselves in, in, in a bunch of different ways. You know, I, I, what I find most difficult about navigating all of this is, is sort of, Embracing the opportunity that digital brings us, and at the same time, sort of, you know, coming down slowly off your past model. And I think what we're seeing is a lot of new, innovative companies that are being born digital that don't have the legacy model that they have to sustain are being a lot more nimble in the market. I'm speaking of places like Open Road, for example, that came right into the market as an e-only publisher, selling backlist books uh, using its digital platform. And, you know, they're not, you know, upset about losing hardcover sales because they never had hardcover sales. As, as one of my friends, Nico Fund, who's uh, the president at Oxford University Press, once so eloquently said, I love to rip off this line, you know, the challenge for publishers now is sort of managing one business into decline, which is the print business, while raising another one up in its place, which is digital. And I think that's really sort of what played out here in this case. Was there a similar sort of argument when paperbacks first came around? When you know, did did people talk about devaluing hardcovers the first time somebody came out with these pulp paperbacks that you could fit into your back pocket? Absolutely, there are all there's, there's there's been a number of different format shifts that have changed uh, the way people sort of view the value of reading, shall we say? And paperbacks was certainly one of them. Of course, you know, publishers in response to the paperback uh, book, windowed, you know, so you would have your hardcover come out first, and the paperback would not be available for another year. So you would mm -hmm. milk every last cent that you could out of your higher margin hardcover sales, and then you would go to paperback. Um, and that was something that they actually the publishers thought about doing with ebooks. The problem with ebooks, of course, is that if you were to window, well, one of the problems with windowing ebooks is if you were to window your ebook edition, it sort of creates a demand for piracy. And all it takes is one person with a scanner to put the book on the web that you're not selling and attract people to it. So you sort of have to find a way to make, once, once the genie is out of the bottle here, you have to sort of find a way to make your book available. Um, and so I think that was the key concern with windowing, that if you know, publishers held back their digital editions, well, people were just going to rip them off. Wow. Well, you've been talking about publishers. We've been talking about Apple. What, what do book authors have? Uh, what is their interest in this? And how will this uh, outcome uh, this affect them, if at all? Authors are in a very interesting place through all of this. Now, they've been very vocally supportive, generally, of uh, the publisher's position in this. It's sort of battle against Amazon because they did feel that, and I'm speaking of groups like, you know, the Association of, of, of Authors' Representatives, for example, and uh, the Authors Guild, which has been supportive of publishers as well, they sort of felt like Amazon was uh, raiding the physical distribution chain for publishers. Uh, that they were pricing books below cost and, and was really sort of driving, putting bookstores in an untenable place. So the authors' groups, by and large, have been uh, pretty supportive of the publishers in this case. But it's hard not for them for them not to notice that digital royalties are not what they're cracked up to be. And so with the agency model in place, publishers are actually making less money, and they're paying fewer royalties to publishers. Recently, uh, HarperCollins had a report, its, its financial report came out, and it showed that it was making substantially, paying substantially less royalty money per sale on ebooks than it was on its hardcovers. And it was making, I think it was 75% return on ebooks versus 40% return on its hardcovers. So, you know, HarperCollins is making more money on ebooks and having greater margins on ebooks, but that's not being passed on to authors necessarily. So there's, you know, 
two things that authors are concerned about. One is, you know, getting a fair chunk of royalties paid to them, but also having a good sustainable market. And just having Amazon as the one player is not does not represent a good sustainable market. You want a lot of players. You want a lot of e-retailers and a lot of physical bookstores stores out there selling your work. So, Andrew, we've got to wrap this up, but I wanted to know if you had any sort of takeaways that you wanted our audience to get from this, because I know there's been a lot of complicated stuff that we've talked about. And so if you have any last message for the book readers out there, the consumers. Well, my takeaway from this, I think, would be not to be distracted by the fight over price, because that is not the key fight that we're going to have as our ebook future develops. Price, consumer price is important, but it does not fix everything. There are a lot of issues with ebooks. You know, you can't own them, you can't lend them, uh, there's privacy issues. There are all kinds of things in our future with ebooks that have yet to be decided, libraries, etc. So I would hope that if anything, that the, you know, this case would call more consumer attention to ebooks and the benefits and the opportunities that we have in, in digital reading, and that we'd have a, a much wider and broader conversation involving publishers and authors and consumers and readers and libraries uh, about towards a more sustainable and workable uh, ebook future. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with PW Senior News Editor Andrew Albanese and his new book, The Battle of 999, can be found anywhere digital books can be bought. So, Andrew, thanks so much. Congratulations on your book. Always great to have you on the show. My pleasure, and thanks for having me. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your questions on the air, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pub, W-K-L-Y radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. So this is our last show on SiriusXM's book radio channel, Channel 80. It is with great sadness that we say goodbye to all of our friends at Sirius. It's been a real pleasure to work with you, uh, and we definitely hope that your good work continues elsewhere. For now, Publishers Weekly Radio continues as a podcast, and you can hear us every week on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. And if you want to take a moment to write that down, it's publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. And from all of us at Publishers Weekly, it's been a blast. Thank you for listening, and please do keep listening online. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.